Hello and welcome to New Things Under the Sun. I'm Matt Clancy. This week, we're going to talk about more science leads to more innovation. So here's another obvious idea that turns out to work. If you want more technological innovation, more science helps. That probably shouldn't come as a surprise. I mean, lots of inventors, though not all, say in surveys that science is an important input into their inventions and about a quarter of patents in 2018 directly cite scientific papers. And we can also think of countless examples of technologies that have their roots in fundamental scientific advances. But none of that necessarily means that investing in more science is actually going to lead to more innovation. For example, maybe some inventors do rely on a tiny sliver of useful science really intensely, but the bulk of scientific work never leaves the ivory tower. And maybe we already do science that's most likely to be useful, so any additional science that we do is going to be of this latter variety that nobody uses. So to see if that's the case, we can turn to a few examples where scientific production in some fields either increased or decreased unexpectedly, and then we can see what happens to technology that tends to rely on that science relative to other technologies. And as we'll see, when you increase or decrease scientific output in a specific field, that tends to respectively increase or decrease the use of science in related technological domains. So let's start with a geopolitical shock that decreased science rather than increasing it. That's World War I. So leading up to World War I, science had increasingly become an international endeavor, with scientists reading articles published all over the world and meeting frequently at, all, at these international conferences. But this all changed when the world split into the Allied powers, the Central powers, and the neutral states uh, ahead of World War I. Yaria, Schwartz, and Waldinger have a 2018 paper that shows that the onset of war led to huge delays in the receipt of new scientific journals from countries belonging to a scientist's enemies. Uh, For example, the paper looks at the time between when a journal was published and received in the Harvard Library uh, over this whole time period, and they can show that there was this massive delay, almost two years, for the delivery of articles that belonged to journals published in the Central Powers. And there was almost, you know, there was a small but not very significant delay in journals that came from the Allied powers, of which the USA was a member. And the Central Powers saw similar delays of receipt of Allied power journals. And we can also consider international conferences. The paper has this really striking image of the attendees of this famous Solvay Conference for Top International Physicists. And we've got conferences in 1911, 1913, and in each one of these we see They sort of highlight by circling the attendees who belong to central powers. Then there's just no conferences at all uh, between 1913 and 1921, uh, which includes the years that World War I is going on. And then there's two conferences again in 1921 and 1924, but now there's no scientists from the central powers. And only in 1927 do you start to see a few faces creep back in. And then by 1930, we're starting to get back to where we were before the war. Iaria, Schwartz, and Waldinger also show a substantial drop in citations to articles published by scientists from the other side during this period. And lastly, they show using text similarity analysis that the titles of journal articles, uh, after they get all translated in English, they begin to become less and less similar between scientists who are on opposite sides during the war. So taken together, it's clear the war cleaved the large international scientific community into two smaller communities. But the impact was different across different fields and countries. In some cases, for example, U.S. biology, 
there wasn't that much of a disruption at all because the field tended to rely on domestic or allied research. But in others, like U.S. biochemistry, scientists heavily cited and heavily used work that came from abroad in these uh, central power countries that they no longer had ready access to. So Iaria, Schwartz, and Waldinger compare the effect of this disruption for scientific fields and countries that relied heavily on outside science to those that didn't. And they show that scientists in fields that most regularly cited top articles by scientists from the other side produced fewer publications than scientists who weren't so reliant on foreign science. Moreover, the quality of the work they did publish was also reduced. For example, scientists in these fields saw a reduction in the probability that they would produce work good enough to be nominated for a Nobel Prize. And most importantly, for the purposes of this whole podcast, Iaria, Schwartz, and Waldinger have this interesting way to track linkages from science to technology by looking for new and novel words that first appear in the titles of scientific articles and then later appear in U.S. patents. And these words, for example, include things like magnetron or electroencephalogram. So as a general rule, on average, every year, a scientist in their data set produces new words that tend to pop up in the text of 0.43 patents down the road. However, scientists most reliant on top foreign science tended to produce fewer of these technological scientific words once they were unable to access science from abroad. So in short, it seems a reduction in science caused by wartime disruption to knowledge flows, reduced the production of new scientific ideas that would normally have been picked up and used in patents in later years. But that was all a long time ago, and World War I was a very unique event. But the results are pretty similar to a more recent geopolitical shock that affect research differently across different fields too. Aurora, Bellinzon, and Sue have a 2021 working paper. It's not primarily concerned with how science leads to technology, uh, but is instead documenting the myriad ways that science facilitates trade in patented technology. But for the purposes of this podcast, let's focus on a part of their study where they identify another scenario where funding unexpectedly changed for different fields. In their case, they're going to use the unexpected collapse of the USSR and the end of the Cold War as this surprise shock to U.S. science funding. The end of the Cold War resulted in a significant reallocation of U.S. federal R&D dollars away from areas like defense and defense-related sciences, such as physics, chemistry, and electrical engineering, and into and towards new scientific areas like computer science, oceanography, and biology. Aurora, Bellinson, and Sue show that these shifts in funding had the kind of effect that you would expect to happen. More funding led to more scientific papers in some fields, and less funding led to fewer papers in others, relative to the counterfactual. Now, since the collapse of the USSR and the subsequent reshuffling of research dollars was this unexpected event, if you're sitting there in the private sector in the early 1990s, from your perspective, there's just been this sudden windfall of new research in some scientific fields, and there's been this deficit relative to your expectations in others. Aurora, Bellinzon, and Sue show that technologies that typically relied on research from these fields that benefited from the end of the Cold War, uh, they responded by citing more research. The share of patents citing scientific papers was correlated with the surge or the decline of scientific papers that were brought about by this Cold War reshuffling of research dollars. And in other parts of the paper, they confirm previous work 
that patents citing scientific research tend to be more valuable by a variety of metrics. They show, for example, the patents citing scientific research receive more citations from other patents, that they're more likely to be bought and sold, and they're more likely to lead to a larger increase in the stock market valuation of the firm that owns them when they get granted. In short, the end of the Cold War disrupted different science fields in different ways. Some fields got more funding and generated more research, others the opposite. Technological fields associated with the winning field cited more research when more research became available, and the patents that cite science tend to look to be more valuable. So both of the above papers use massive geopolitical shocks to document how big changes to the production of science get reflected in technology down the road. But while they are very suggestive, they don't exactly attempt to show that more science necessarily leads to more technology. Instead, they show that a decline in science leads to a reduction in the use of science by technology, and an increase in science leads to an increase in the use of science by technology, and also that more science-based technology seems to be more valuable. But two other papers look at much smaller scale changes in science production to show more explicitly that increasing the production of science tends to increase technological innovation as well. So to start, let's look at a clever 2019 paper by Tabakovic and Woolman about football and scientific research. So there's one peculiarity of the U.S. university system is that for some schools, a non-negligible share of university revenues comes from college football. So for universities in the NCAA, when their team does unexpectedly well, the university gets this windfall funding due to licensing broadcast rights, increased merchandise sales, alumni fundraising, uh, fundraising, and so on. So the amounts here we're talking about can be quite large. Football revenues are equal to more than a third of tuition revenue at Louisiana State University. And a lot of this funding does find its way into supporting university research in the next year. So Tabakovic and Woolman exploit this idiosyncrasy in U.S. funding mechanisms to identify universities that receive unexpected research dollar windfalls. Specifically, they look at how universities support for research changes when teams outperform or underperform preseason expectations as measured by votes in the NCAA top 25A poll. So they've got a figure here that shows this positive uh, going up into the right correlation between the expect you know your outperformance of NCAA expectations measured in terms of how many votes you receive at the end of the season relative to the beginning. And they show that these guys get more institutional funding for research in the following year, and those that underperform get less. And then they have two other panels as sort of a sanity check that the performance in your football team is uncorrelated with how many federal grants you receive or grants from other things, as we would kind of expect. So what happens when researchers get more money? Tabakovic and Woolman estimate that a 10% increase in funding is associated with 3% more publications the following year. And it turns out that the funded schools also get more patents. Uh, they find out about $2.6 million in funding for university research is associated with about one more patent. Lastly, they can use the revenue the university earns by licensing out those patents to get a rough estimate on whether the patents are valuable enough for a private sector firm to pay for access to them. And they seem to be. A 10% increase in funding is associated with at least a 10% increase in licensing revenues. Now, all those estimates are pretty noisy, but they're more or less consistent with one of my favorite recent studies, which also exploits a similar special case when funding is more or less randomly handed out to different groups of scientists. 
Azule et al. have a 2019 paper that wants to study how NIH funding for basic biological research eventually leads to private biomedical innovation. To measure biomedical innovation, Azule and co-authors identify a large set of biomedical patents. And this is a good sector to study because the pharmaceutical sector relies on patent protection to an unusually large degree. And so for this sector, patents tend to be a better measure of actual innovation than might be the case for other sectors. So they go on to link these biomedical patents to journal articles via citations. And then they go a step further and link the journal articles to grants received from the NIH. And this lets them see in unusual detail the entire pipeline from funding for basic research to technological innovation. They can see if more NIH funding is associated with more journal articles and more journal articles is associated with more patents, with each link in that chain observable with direct citations. And it is. In general, an extra $10 million for a given disease science area is associated with 2.6 more related patents in that same disease area. That's $3.8 million per patent, which isn't that different from what Tabakovic and Woolman found, $2.6 million. This finding holds even when you include a lot of control variables such as scientific field-specific variation over time. To take one example, maybe we think gene sequencing technology means genetic studies get a lot more bang for their buck than in the past, and the federal government responds by giving more grants to scientists proposing genetic research. So in principle, we might be worried that that's going to inflate the apparent value of funding since these fields that get more money were more likely to generate valuable knowledge even if they got less money because there was just these advances in the field. But in that case, the paper shows the results still hold when you compare within this scientific area at this point in time. That is, if you compare grant proposals, two grant proposals that both rely on genetic studies, but they're for different diseases and one gets more money than the other, the result still holds. The one that got more money ends up with more patents down the road, and you can trace this all the way back to the grant through citations. And the paper goes even further than that. Azule and co-authors exploit this idiosyncrasy in funding to get plausibly random variation in which grants get funded and which don't. So this is kind of complicated, but to simplify, it's kind of like this. All grant proposals that the NIH receives belong to both a scientific area and a disease area. And proposals are scored by scientific communities or committees. And these scientific committees are going to review proposals always in the same science, but they might be associated with different diseases. But then proposals don't get funded by these scientific committees. They get handed off to be funded or not based on how well they rank compared to other proposals for the same disease, not the same science. So you can have situations like this. Suppose one proposal scores very well. Maybe it gets an 8 out of 10. But because the other proposals in the same scientific area are even better, it gets a low ranking from its science committee. It's ranked like the fifth out of five projects. Now, in another scientific committee, another proposal faces the opposite situation. It's a poor quality proposal and it gets a bad score, just four out of ten. But since the other proposals are even worse, this guy ends up with a high ranking from its science group. Maybe it gets ranked first out of five. Now, if both of these proposals have the same disease group, you can end up with a situation where the weaker grant, the one that only got a 4 out of 10, gets funded simply because it had a higher ranking. And that ranking is not due to its inherent quality, but due to the quality of the proposals that it was in the same basket with. So Azalea and co-authors look at the 10 proposals that straddle the funding cutoff for a given disease group. And you're going to always have, by definition, five proposals above the cutoff, and they get funded, and five that are below and don't get funded. 
and down towards this cutoff, the uncertainties discussed just now, they loom large, and whether a given proposal lies above or below this threshold is largely a matter of luck. And so the authors create measures of windfall funding based on whether a disease science area has more than 50% of its proposals lying above or below this cutoff. And in that way, they can see what happens to innovation in fields that get a couple of extra million dollars in grant money compared to those that just missed out. And using this more complicated approach, they find uh, basically the same thing. A random extra $10 million results in about 2.3 more related patents. But in this case, doing all that extra work means we can be more confident that this relationship is causal. Biological science funding leads to biomedical innovation down the road. So, to sum up. One, scientific fields, more disrupted by war, produced fewer new scientific words that would go on to show up in patents than fields that were less disrupted by the war. Two, scientific fields that benefited from the restructuring of R&D during the end of the Cold War produced more papers, and uh, they got more cited by technologies that usually rely on science from those fields, and in general, patents that cite science tended to be higher quality. Three, universities that got windfall funding on the unexpected strength of their football teams produced more papers, patents, and technology licensing revenue. And four, science disease areas that received more funding due to these idiosyncrasies in NIH funding rules produced more papers, which explicitly acknowledged grant support, and more patents, which explicitly cited those papers. And there's one more line of supporting evidence, too. One potential downside of all these papers is that they rely on patents to measure technological innovation. And the strength of patents in this case is that they provide such detailed data in the form of the citations, the text describing the inventions, the licensing fees, and that lets us really nail down the link between science and technology. But at the same time, patents are a highly imperfect measure of technological innovation. But if you're willing to look at messier correlational data and there's a link in the newsletter to an earlier newsletter I did covering this data. We also have some correlational data on R&D and measures of industry-wide total factor productivity. In short, higher levels of basic R&D tend to be associated with higher productivity in related industries, but with a lag of about 20 years. And as discussed in the newsletter that covers this literature, a lag that hap- that lag of 20 years happens to be pretty close to the lag between patents and the research they cite. So taken all together, in addition to our prior beliefs that modern technology relies to a large degree on better science, it makes a pretty compelling case. More science tends to lead to more innovation. Now, it's not the only thing that leads to more innovation, and it doesn't lead to innovation in every field, but it does work. Thank you. And now it's time for the standard end-of-the-episode boilerplate. You've been listening to a podcast from New Things Under the Sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation in accessible but rigorous research syntheses. New Things Under the Sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. The podcast you listen to is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast, or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.